So I went to the doctor recently and had some weird challenges, not actually sure what they are yet, but one of the things the doctor said is, we're going to have to do some tests to find out what's going on. Now, I know all of us have different reactions to when a doctor says that to us, but I felt grateful. Grateful that the tests were available, that they were being prescribed to me, and that we could, you know, hopefully rule out a bunch of serious possibilities. And what I don't want a doctor to do is to sugarcoat the story so that I don't actually realize what's wrong. You know, if I don't realize what's wrong, I'm not going to take the medicine very seriously or whatever treatment plan. So if there's something really bad, say it, right? Would you agree? I mean, we don't want our doctor to say something bad, but you kind of do want them to tell you the truth. And sometimes it's easy to, just in the spirit of trying to keep everything comfortable, set some of the tough things aside and just focus on what's cheerful. All of us are tempted to do that. Um, and yet, when you open up the Bible and you start reading, you realize it's not necessarily cheerful. In fact, from Genesis 3 forward, it's not really a happy story until the very, very end. And so, so today, we're going to look at how sin started and what its consequence has been in our lives and what it will be in our future. And then we get to the end of the story and we realize how God is willing to tell us the truth a lot of us don't want to hear about ourselves and about what's next so that we'll take seriously the offer of rescue, the prescription that he gives us. So that's what we're aiming at doing today. If you're working through this in the book that we've given out, uh, Basic Christianity, this week, read chapter 6. There's no way for me to cover everything about what, you know, the, the, some of the subjects we're talking about are amazing and complex topics. Um, and so we're just scratching the surface here on Sunday morning. I hope you're picking up this book and reading it along with us. That, that's how you'll grow. That's, that's really how we've designed for you to learn uh, these truths, is not just to listen to me, but to open up your Bible and then to use this book as a supplement to that. Uh, to really be able to understand what Jesus came to do, how he helps you, what your next step should be. So um, I want to ask you a question first before we get into all of this, because all of us have experience personally with the idea of consequences. We remember that from the time that we're kids. Now that doesn't mean as adults we don't have consequences. We still do, right? And usually the stakes are higher. Uh, as an adult, if you face consequences, man, you're really in trouble. Uh, kids, at least you're, you know, it's sort of this more coaching. You're trying to help the kid learn the lesson. Uh, so what is a childhood consequence for misbehavior that you can still remember? A consequence that you thought, maybe it helped you. Maybe you look back and you're like, you know, I didn't like it at the time, but I'm actually kind of glad that happened, kind of grateful for that consequence. And then the next question is, what is the aim of parents or teachers or, or police officers or other authorities? What is the aim in providing consequences? Okay, so I, I want to give you a chance to answer that question before I give you my answers. So turn to the person next to you and ask them this question. Hey, what's one consequence you remember from when you were a kid that still sticks out in your mind that you remember and you might even be willing to say, kind of glad that happened. All right, well... Judging by the fact that some of you are smiling, I guess you lived through the consequence that 
happened. Um, I, I can think of lots of them, sadly, um, in my, like the more I think about it, the more I'm remembering, it's like uncovering all these consequences I lived through. Uh, one that really stuck out to me was a speeding ticket at age 16. Um, I just, you know, like the average guy teenager, they gave me a driver's license. I was not the wisest person. I was not doing the smartest things. And I'm actually really glad for the speeding ticket because it stopped me from being bad at driving. Like, it really woke me up in a big way. And in my world, in my economy at that time, it was also really expensive. Of course, mom and dad weren't willing to pay for it, rightly so. And uh, so I had to cough up the money and go stand before a magistrate and say, you know, I think I learned the lesson. And um, I did. I learned the lesson. So I'm grateful for that consequence. Um, when, when you think about the aim of providing consequences, especially to kids, I think of it as something that's loving. Like if, and so I have this talk with my kids all the time. Maybe those of you who are parents, you've tried this before. The kids don't believe it, but I feel they'll, they'll remember, in the future they'll believe it. Um, and I'll say, I'm doing this actually because I care about you. If I didn't care, I wouldn't even bother with consequences because it wouldn't matter to me what you're doing. But as long as I care about you, I'm thinking about your best. The consequences in that context are actually about coaching and correcting for the future. Because I know, man, if you keep acting like that, like I still love you as your dad, but when you don't live here anymore and you're somewhere else and you do that, you're going to be in much bigger trouble. That's going to ruin your life if that's you know, your attitude or that's how you respond to authority. So to me, consequences in the parental context are actually kind of a gift that we're giving. Um, so at least that's what you can tell yourself as a parent when your kid is upset at you, um, which happens to me frequently. So just another reminder, Chapter 6 of the book is what we're reading this week about the consequences of sin and how God, God's interaction with us is not just parental. There is an aspect of that. Uh, God is, is sort of in the same moment representing for us the heavenly father who loves us and the judge who's meeting out true justice. Okay? So he's holding both of those roles in our lives. Uh, now, we looked at this last week. Sin leads to all sorts of terrible things, most of all the judgment of God. That is why... Jesus saving, saving us from our sins is so critical. We can't help ourselves. Okay? So the good news of the gospel is that there's help available. The bad news you have to believe first is that you can't help yourself. Once you get to that place of saying, okay, Lord, I realize as far as my debt to justice is concerned, I can't do anything to fix the problem that is in me or pay for my own sins. Once you come to that realization, suddenly the cure, the medicine, starts to make a lot more sense because you've had an accurate diagnosis of what's really wrong. Jesus came to give us life, to give us restoration, to redeem us from sin. That's why the Bible calls him a redeemer. Um, he's not just a great teacher. He's not just a religious leader. He literally is the rescue for your soul. So we're going to walk through some of the consequences of sin. We already looked at Isaiah 59. I'd like you to turn to the third page of the Bible, Genesis 3, and we're not going to walk through the whole storyline here, I'll just summarize it, but I want to read you specifically what God said the consequence for Adam and Eve's original sin was, and what it still is. So in context here, remember God had created the world, it was all very good, Adam and Eve were placed in a perfect Garden of Eden, 
They were given all these amazing tasks to, to sort of organize and rule the world as God's representatives. So you might imagine them kind of looking forward to all sorts of amazing things that would have been possible in this context. A world filled with resources, but not burdened by sin and evil and darkness. You know, wow, like what kind of advances could they make? What kind of future could they build? It could have been an amazing storyline. But then something happened in chapter 3 that derailed a lot of that. Uh, the serpent, uh, who was the devil, tempted Eve and then Adam to do the one thing that God had specifically said not to do. Don't eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Now, if you want to think more about that, I would encourage you to zero in on that and do some thinking about why that tree was important and why that represented sin. But if we wanted to sort of summarize that, we would say Adam and Eve were expected to believe God's direction for their life and follow God's direction for their life. And in that moment, they stepped outside of God's plan, outside of his purpose, and they said, we want to do it our way. We don't trust what God said to us. We're going to trust our own instinct. And you know what? The serpent's right. I kind of do want to eat from that tree and find out what happens. I do, I, I want, I, and so they, they, they stepped far outside of what God had asked. Even though, man, the table was set for them to live in perfection forever, they blew it. And on our behalf, they blew it too. They started a cascading impact of sin in the world that still reaches into every one of our lives. So now, when we look at what happens, we find Adam and Eve are hiding because as soon as they break the rule and the guilt starts, the shame starts, they know something is radically wrong. And we look down to verse 8. When the cool evening breezes were blowing, the man and his wife heard the Lord God walking about in the garden. So they hid from the Lord God among the trees. Then the Lord God called out for the man, where are you? He replied, I heard you walking in the garden, so I hid. I was afraid because I was naked. Who told you that you were naked? The Lord God asked. Have you eaten from the tree whose fruit I commanded you not to eat? Obviously, there's more going on here than just the surface, right? There's quite a bit to think about in this text as far as what, what the meaning of some of these things are. The man replied, well, it was the woman you gave me who gave me the fruit, and I ate it. Now that we can all understand, right? Because when you're in trouble, what is the first instinct of every human being? Blame someone else. So you just think, like Adam and Eve, you know, the first marriage, like they must have been so excited to be married, so much love. You could imagine Adam just giving the Valentine's bouquets every day if he wanted to, and all of that was out the window in one instant when he's in trouble. Lord, the reason I did this is because of her. <laughs> so that was Adam's attempt. At first he was trying to hide, now he's trying to blame. Then the Lord God asked the woman, what have you done? Oh, the serpent deceived me, she replied. That's why I ate it. So once again, what are we doing? Oh, let's blame someone else. Pass the buck a different direction. So then the Lord God said to the serpent, well, because you have done this, you are cursed more than all the animals, domestic and wild. You'll crawl on your belly, groveling in the dust as long as you live. And I will cause hostility between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He will strike your head, and you will strike his heel. You can imagine Adam and Eve just taking this big sigh of relief. 
Wow, glad he gave that to the serpent, not to us. But there's more. Then he said to the woman, I will sharpen the pain of your pregnancy, and in pain you will give birth, and you will desire to control your husband, but he will rule over you. And to the man, he said, since you listened to your wife and ate from the tree whose fruit I commanded you not to eat, the ground is cursed because of you. All your life you will struggle to scratch out a living from it. It will grow thorns and thistles for you, and though you will eat of its grains, by the sweat of your brow will you have food to eat until you return to the ground from which you were made. For you were made from dust, and to dust you will return. Now let me ask you, is that the original plan for Adam and Eve? To go back to the dust? No. They were supposed to bear God's image forever. And yet now Adam, stepping outside of God's intent, uh, has signed himself and all of us up for a very different future. A future defined by death instead of by life. And so though God mercifully still gives us life, it's temporary. Then the man, Adam, named his wife Eve because she would be the mother of all who live. And the Lord God made clothing from animal skins for Adam and his wife. And then the Lord God said, look, the human beings have become like us, knowing both good and evil. What if they reach out and take from the tree of life and eat it? Then they will live forever. So the Lord God banished them from the Garden of Eden, and he sent Adam out to cultivate the ground from which he had been made. As he was sending them out, the Lord God stationed mighty cherubim to the east of the Garden of Eden, and he placed a flaming sword that flashed back and forth to guard the way to the tree of life. So not only did Adam and Eve lose their fellowship with God in this moment, not only did they lose their innocence and their joy, and even the fact that they were in a very productive garden that was basically doing the work for them, now they had to go out and scratch out a living. Uh, but they also lost access to the tree of life, which means that no longer could they live forever. So I find that disheartening and yet kind of fascinating to think about how all of this started. And now we see in our own lives the ongoing consequence of this choice that they made. So let's just walk through a few principles here. When we think about sin's consequences, we see multiple layers. There are in-life consequences that happen sometimes right away when you commit a sin. Then there's death, physical death, that happens to all of us. And then there's afterlife consequences that are promised to us in prophecy about what will happen post-mortem, what will happen when we stand before God and give an account for our lives. So we're just going to look briefly at all these, knowing that the Bible has so much to say. Um, and for me, this is something that, you know, sometimes you're inviting people to think about something and trying to convince them that's, that it's important. Like, hey, you really should think about this. I don't actually feel that way about this because all of us know we'll face this. So I don't feel like I have to convince you that you ought to spend time thinking about it. This is pretty important. So I'm guessing that you're thinking, you know, I'm willing to think about it. You don't have to tell me why. Uh, so let's, let's do it. First of all, sin creates a debt that must be paid, a debt to human justice and a debt to divine justice. So you think of it, when you, when, when you commit a sin against someone, that you, you feel like you owe that person something, right? At minimum, you'd say, I owe that person an apology. Because in your mind, in your conscience, you realize the scales are out of balance. Some, some, justice isn't being done. 
If I lied to you, I need to come and admit that I lied and tell you the truth. If I stole something from you, I need to walk up and pay you back. Because until I do that, the, the scales aren't in balance. I, I've some, somehow I, I owe you something. And the same is true, only on a much higher level, when it comes to our debt to God's justice. When we read in the Bible about God's law, his truth, his perfect standard, when we violate that, we accrue a debt to justice. A debt that, that, that God has to bring to us and set before us on judgment day. And so when we face human justice, sometimes we say, I need to pay my debt to society or I need to you know, rectify, reconcile my relationships. When it comes to divine justice, the same thing is in play, but we don't have the ability to pay it back. We don't have the ability to solve the problem that we've created. So our debt is astronomical. Our debt keeps mounting, but we have, no, we have nothing to balance it with. So some people will say, well, I'm going to try to do some good to balance out my bad. The problem with that is that good balancing out your bad doesn't actually pay back your debt to justice. It might make you feel better, might even make the people around you feel better, but it doesn't actually reverse the thing that went wrong in the first place. And so your good deeds can't undo the sin that you've committed. So you still have this consequence, this debt sitting in front of you that has to be paid. I don't know about you, but I don't want to stand before God on Judgment Day with a big load of debt that I don't have any way to pay. Like I, I hope there's another pathway. Okay, here's another thing that sin does. Sin creates a divide between those involved, a divide between people and also separation from God, a divide between people and God. So we read that in, in Isaiah 59, right? Or second verse there, he says, our sins have separated us from God. And so although we were supposed to be close to God, we're not. Although we're supposed to have this rich relationship with God, we can't because our sin separates us from God. God is so holy and so true that anything that's evil can't be in his presence. You can't have fellowship with God if you're marred by evil. So once again, we stand across this great divide thinking, well, I don't, I don't have any way to bridge that. I mean, no matter what I do, I mean, think of this. Some people would think in concrete terms, they would think, well, maybe if, I, maybe if I somehow just prove to God how much I'm changing in my heart, maybe if I turn over a new leaf or really work hard at being a better person, maybe then I'll close that gap. And I, and I feel like for the, the, that, if we think that way, we're missing the point of how much sin separates us from God. This isn't like a little crack in the sidewalk that you have to hop over. This is like the Grand Canyon. Like God is far away from us because of our sin. Something miraculous would have to happen for us to ever get across that divide. So once again, we look up to heaven and we say, wow, I'm in trouble. Like the the consequence of my sin, I, I don't have a way to solve for this. And there's another layer. Sin creates destruction of what is good, both in terms of what we could call natural consequences and divine consequences. So a natural consequence is when you do something wrong and immediately it comes back to bite you 
and you're like, man, that was stupid. I shouldn't have done that. Um, that that's, it's the natural consequence. It's just it's going to happen. So sometimes, and this might be part of your parenting, sometimes when you think about how much should you protect your child from making a wrong choice versus kind of let them learn the lesson, you're, you're counting on natural consequences in that moment. Saying, you know, if, if they go out and they do the wrong thing and they have to pay the price for it, they'll learn the lesson. You don't necessarily need God to like intervene to make the lesson happen. It's just going to happen because the way life on earth works, there's consequence when you do the wrong thing. Divine consequences take it a step further. That's when God intentionally brings a consequence into the story to either punish what is wrong or wake people up and move them back to what's right. So when you read, especially in, in the prophetic portions of the Bible, like the book of Isaiah, you see a whole bunch of divine consequence being meted out, where God will see like a group of people that have just rebelled and, man, they're just, their attitudes are terrible, and he'll finally say, great, I'm going to bring to you some sort of a, a penalty, some sort of a challenge, and it maybe even an invasion from an enemy force, in order to pull you back to what is right. Uh, sometimes it will be that, that the evil that the people have done is so terrible that God will just say, all right, you're done. Like, we're not going to wait for natural consequences to play themselves out. I'm just ending this right here, right now. It's gone too far. So God has the ability to do that, right? He's the ultimate judge. Uh, so he can either let natural consequences teach us the lesson, or sometimes he can intervene and go far further than that. So sin again brings all this forward, but we don't really have a way to fix it. I mean, here, I guess you could say in this regard, well, I'll try better in the future not to mess up, uh, but still, we find ourselves in a world that's just terribly broken and that really needs rescue. So the ultimate consequence of sin then occurs after all of that. It occurs um, when all people will face God at what the Bible says is the great white throne judgment. So just to get ready for this, if you want to turn in your Bible to Revelation chapter 20, we're going to read about that um, in just a second. Revelation 20. When I was a kid, the church that I was in had a rack of little booklets, little comic booklets, um, that had, oh, just, you know, powerful little messages in them. A lot of them were trying to convince you to become a Christian. And this was one that I remember that kind of shaped my own imagination of what Judgment Day might look like. Now, this is just a comic book, right? So there's, it's not necessarily exactly biblical. The principle is right. Um, but there's this, there's this little comic book called This Was Your Life. And the premise is that this person goes through their life, kind of ignores God, doesn't really pay attention to what God would want. They die suddenly, and now they're getting ushered by an angel into God's presence for Judgment Day. And when they get there to Judgment Day, God says, well, let's review this person's life. And so they turn to a movie screen, which I guess they have in heaven based on this, and they play back the guy's life starting from when he was a baby going all through his life, all of his teenage years, his adult years, and they're kind of zeroing in on things that would pose a problem for this guy. They zero in on the time that he was selfish or the time that he had lust or greed in his heart, the time that he, the, the time that he lied, the time that he hurt someone. 
And, and all of this, as, as the guy is watching his own video, he's getting more and more worried. Because, you know, he kind of stepped forward into this moment thinking, I'll probably be okay. I mean, I wasn't the worst guy. But wow, the more that video plays, the more he's feeling farther and farther apart from God and feeling like I might really be in trouble here. You know that feeling when you really think you're in trouble? I hate that feeling. It does happen sometimes. It actually happened to me about four days ago. I had a few, I had a few years ago, I had started a little business just to try out some ideas and didn't really take it anywhere. Then COVID happened. I just kind of forgot about it. I thought I'd filed all the papers the way I was supposed to. Well, here I looked in, a, in an email that I hadn't looked in in a while, and there were a whole bunch of warnings in the email. I'm like, oh, what's this? Open it up, and there's a $2,000 sales tax bill from the state of Michigan turned over to collections, all these angry, you know, final notice, you know, we're taking you and your household and everything if you don't respond. And I was like, you know, initially you're going, okay, wait, what? And then all of a sudden the sinking feeling like, wait, this is actually really from the state of Michigan. And uh, so I went right to a bookkeeper and said, um, like, I, I don't even want to call, like, I don't want them to arrest me. Like, what do I do? I literally never made any sales in this business. So that I didn't even know why, like, why would I have sales tax? Well, what had happened was because I didn't file, they estimated what my, what like sales for that business could have been. And then because I didn't file anything to say, then they started adding fees to and so, so a few years later, it's up to $2,000 and a whole bunch of warnings. Thankfully, I had a great, I called the government of Michigan, the treasury, and said, you know, can someone help me? And I actually got a nice person on the phone. It was, I don't know, it was like reassuring and there's still some good in government somewhere. The guy was like, oh yeah, let me help you. And just in like three minutes, they zeroed it all out. I was fine. But wow, for about a day and a half, I had knots in my stomach going like, okay, I can swallow the $2,000, but I really don't want to. I mean, this is like a terrible thing. So we all kind of know that feeling. What I'm imagining on Judgment Day for some people is that feeling multiplied by a million. Like when you realize you're in trouble and you literally have no way to go back and kind of rewind and fix the problem. So eventually in the comic book, the, you know, God says, open the book of life, like after they'd look at this guy's lifestyle, and the angel says his name does not appear. Like of all the people who are slated to enter heaven, this guy's not there. And the end of this little comic book is that this guy gets cast into the lake of fire. So it's definitely a wake-up call when you read this little story and you go, wow, that's, that's what's coming. But is that actually what's coming? Let's read it in the Bible to see for ourselves. So we'll start in Revelation 20. Verse 11, so this is the end of you know, the whole revelation narrative with earth facing all sorts of judgments and moments of destruction. There's all sorts of things happening. Jesus comes back. Everybody's standing here at judgment day. Verse 11, then I saw heaven opened and a white horse was standing there and its rider was named Faithful and True. For he judges fairly and he wages a righteous war. His eyes were like flames of fire, and on his head were many crowns. A name was written on him that no one understood except himself. He wore a robe dipped in blood, and his title was the Word of God. Who is this? This is Jesus. 
Not Jesus, the meek and mild shepherd. Not Jesus, the loving comforter. This is Jesus on the warpath. This is the end of days. This is when justice is coming. He's bringing it. Verse 14, the armies of heaven dressed in the finest pure white linen followed him on white horses. From his mouth came a sharp sword to strike down the nations. He will rule them with an iron rod. He will release the fierce wrath of God the Almighty like juice flowing from a winepress. On his robe at his thigh was written this title, King of Kings and Lord of all Lords. And then I saw an angel standing in the sun, shouting to the vultures flying high in the sky, Come, gather around for a great banquet God has prepared. Come and eat the flesh of kings, generals, strong warriors, of horses and their riders, of all humanity, both free and slave, small and great. And then I saw the beast, which throughout Revelation was the leader of evil in the world, and the kings of the world, and all their armies gathered together to fight against the one sitting on the horse, uh, uh, sitting on the horse and his army, and the beast was captured, and with him the false prophet who did mighty miracles on behalf of the beast, miracles that deceived all who had accepted the mark of the beast and worshipped his statue. Both the beast and the false prophet were thrown into the fiery lake of burning sulfur. By the way, I just realized I was reading from 19 first, then we're going to 20, so some of you might have been a little lost there. Um, but uh, but here's the. Here we have Jesus coming in sort of victorious triumph over evil, defeating all these enemies, and then setting up this moment where God's judgment comes to us. Okay, so for that, we go then to verse 11 of chapter 20. And I saw the great white throne and the one sitting on it. Earth and sky fled from his presence, but they found no place to hide. I saw the dead, both great and small, standing before God's throne. And the books were opened, including the book of life. And the dead were judged according to what they'd done, recorded in the books. The sea gave up its dead. Death and the grave gave up their dead. All were judged according to their deeds. Then death and the grave were thrown into the lake of fire. The lake of fire is the second death. And anyone whose name was not found recorded in the book of life was thrown into that lake of fire. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth For the old heaven and the old earth had disappeared, and the sea was also gone. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down from God out of heaven, like a bride beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud shout from the throne saying, Look, God's home is now among his people. He will live with them. They will be his people. God himself will be with them. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. And there will be no more death or sorrow or crying or pain. All these things, all these consequences of sin will be gone forever. And the one sitting on the throne said, Look, I am making everything new. And then he said to me, Write this down, for what I tell you is trustworthy and true. And he also said, It is finished. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To all who are thirsty, I will give freely from the springs of the water of life. All who are victorious will inherit all these blessings, and I will be their God and they will be my children. But, now we get to some consequence, the cowards, unbelievers, the corrupt, murderers, the immoral, those who practice witchcraft, idol worshipers, and all liars, their fate will be in the fiery lake of burning sulfur. This is the second death. So going forward, what we find 
is that the consequence for sin far outlasts this lifetime. The consequence for sin um, not only ruins what God created in the garden to be our life on earth, but it ruins our eternity. And you and I have a question to face then. If we already know that we're guilty, so we talked about last week, we already know that sin has, has already marked us, we know that we can't do anything to save ourselves, we can't reverse what's already happened, then what hope do we have? In Hebrews 4.13, it says, Nothing in all creation is hidden from God. Everything is naked and exposed before his eyes. And he is the one to whom we are accountable. There's nowhere to run. There's nowhere to hide. God already sees the truth. Just like Adam and Eve in the garden, you can hide behind the bushes if you want to, but it doesn't help. God still knows you. He still knows the truth. There's good news in the Bible for people like us. Good news that just when we would admit we're helpless, we're hopeless, there's nowhere to go. God stepped into history with a redeemer, a rescuer. Someone who could pay the penalty of sin for us. Someone who would take upon himself the death and destruction that we were owed. Someone who would pay back our debt to justice for us. Romans 5.8 God showed his great love for us by sending Christ to die for us while we were still sinners. Next week, we'll pick it up right there and talk about how Jesus' death is your pathway to life. Let's pray. Lord, we're so thankful that you extend mercy to people like us who don't deserve it, who could never earn it. Thank you that even though many times over you could have justly ended our lives or taken away all hope of mercy, that you still have extended to us opportunity and salvation the offer of forgiveness and new life. Lord, for all of that, we have to say thank you. Even as we're very humbled by reading the truth in your word about the consequences of sin, I pray that none of us in this room would have to bear the fullness of those consequences because, Lord, we will have taken your offer of salvation. So for anyone here today that has not taken that offer, that has not put their faith in you and asked for forgiveness, I pray that you would prompt their heart right now to do just that. And Lord, I pray that you would give each one of us a sense of seriousness and urgency about our lives, knowing how much is at stake. We pray all this in Jesus' name. All right, I'll see you next week. Have a blessed week.